Good morning, church. Would you please open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 17, verses 22 and following will be our primary text today. Acts 17, if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We'll make sure that you get a Bible. Acts 17, verses 22 through 34 is where we will be for most of our time this morning. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here. Humbled, grateful to open up God's Word uh, with you. And in particular, I'm grateful to be a part of a community that celebrates and cries together. Amen? That we're always doing both. Christians are people, by God's grace, who see that His kingdom is already, and therefore we celebrate that King Jesus' will is already coming into this world, and yet we lament because it is not yet. It is not yet fully realized in the way that it will be in the day of the Lord. And so we are always sorrowful and always celebrating as a community. And God is always faithful in both. He protects us from pride in our celebration. And he protects us from despair in our sorrow. And therefore, we always grieve with hope. And we always celebrate with humility. And God is good to be forging that in us as a community. And so I'm deeply grateful for that today. Uh, If you've been tracking with us for a while, then you know that Paul is now in Athens in our journey in Acts. He's come to Athens and he's sort of looked around and he has seen literally litter on the streets of idols. Idolatry mounting in the form of physical and visible artifacts or these statues made of gold and silver and stone. And though they are specific and physical and material sorts of things, there's something going on beneath the surface of which the scriptures are quite explicit about. Hear this, the second commandment from Exodus 20, verse 4 and following. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath And that is in the water underneath the earth. Verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. See, in Athens, Paul was confronted by countless idols, that he looked to the left and the right and saw this gold, silver, and stone shaped into the image and likeness of something that was created. And so his vitriol, the the word used in Acts, is that he's provoked by these things. This emotive response is particularly because Paul knows the word of God that is explicit that making those kinds of artifacts, making those kinds of statues, making those kinds of images are a direct violation of God's word in Exodus 20. But it's not only about making something. We need to be very careful when we talk about idols. It's not just making something physical. If you think through the language in the second commandment in Exodus 20, it talks about the love of God. It uses language of loving, trusting, and obeying. See, the real issue in Athens is not that people were taking gold and silver and stone and making stuff. It's that they began to love, trust, and obey those things. This is what idolatry is made of. Not these artifacts but ultimately of the mind and of the heart. See, when we disobey God, we are actually not merely violating the second commandment in making these artifacts. We're violating the first, which says that you shall have no other gods before me. See, physical idols were the mere surface level offense. Let's hear this well this morning, church. Physical invisible idols... Physical visible sins are merely the symptomatic surface level offenses. What is going on beneath the surface with idolatry is choosing another God over and against the God of the Bible to love, trust, and obey. See, as today, the true idolatry going on in the streets of Athens was at the level of the mind and heart. Hear this from Pastor Tim Keller from his book, Counterfeit Gods, as he defines idolatry this way. What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. 
An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship with something, but perhaps the best one, Keller says, is worship. A good thing from God that we make central, something a part of his creation, ultimately meant to esteem him, glorify him, and to display his character. If we take that and make that central, that is an idol. For the Athenians then, the sophisticated and educated folks, the elites that were about to invite Paul to a special conversation in their special place, it's like this little boys club they're about to invite him into to talk about sophisticated and learned things. See, what we learn in Acts is that what these Athenians were really enamored with, what their idol underneath the physical and visible idols was, was knowledge. See, these physical gold, silver stones were literally littering the streets. But what we realize, look at with your eyes back up to verse 21 in Acts chapter 17. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Tell me something new. I'm interested. I'm learned. I'm educated. I keep learning things. I'm amazing. This is central to who I am. It's all they ever did. They just wanted to learn. It's why Paul is invited into that special place to have that special conversation, because they're obsessed with knowledge. They're obsessed with intellect. They idolize their brains that's what's going on beneath the surface. Can I suggest to you, we're not very different. We're not very different. The shape and context of modern society that we live in has done little to change the form and function of idolatry. We would do well to not see the Bible's teaching about idolatry as a pain and a difficult sin of the past, but something that faces the human heart constantly, consistently today. So hear this from Thomas Oden, the great American theologian in the late 20th century. One has a God when a finite value is worshipped and adored and viewed as that without which one cannot receive life joyfully. Is there something in your heart of hearts that you say, if I don't have that, I won't have joy? If I don't get that, if I'm not perceived this way, if I don't understand these things, if I am not viewed this way, then I cannot find joy. See, what we love, what we trust, what we obey, something that promises us happiness. And isn't it true, happiness is pretty central to us. We will go after anything if it promises to make us happy, particularly if it promises to make us happy tomorrow, immediately, right away. That's the thing that we will go after. Writer and speaker, Rebecca Pippert says this in her book, her wonderful book, Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World. Whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the lords of our lives. And here is the deception of idols. We make them and create them in order to do something for us and slowly but surely we begin to bow the knee to them and we are at their will. We are consumed by them, they not with us. We are no different than the ancient Athenians And you might think, well, this is just a spiritual practice, preacher. Like, this is just something for the halls of religion and the church. Let me take you to the pages of the New York Times from 2007. Pundit David Brooks in his article, When Politics Becomes Your Idol. The title alone ought to put a seatbelt on you for what he is about to share. When Politics Becomes Your Idol, David Brooks quotes political scientist Alex Thurdotis when he said this, partnership or excuse me, partisanship, for many Americans today takes the form of visceral, even subconscious attachment to a party group. Our party becomes a part of our self-concept in deep and meaningful ways. And Brooks goes on to say this, when politics is used as a cure for spiritual and social loneliness, it's harder to win people over with policy and philosophical arguments. Everything is shaped on a deeper level through parables, fables, and myths that our most fundamental groups use to define themselves. 
We are no different than the ancient Athenians. Let us not believe this is a rudimentary culture of which we have progressed beyond, and therefore we need a different word. We need to be saved just as much from our idols as the ancient Athenians. We still make idols. We love, we trust, and we obey thousands of things, countless things other than God. And so when Paul walks down this first century road and he sees the streets literally littered with idols, he is provoked because it is a breaking of the first and second commandment at the level of the heart. And it is these false idols which Paul now will dismantle. And as he does so for his first century audience, he will do to us on his second, day, on his second missionary journey. By walking through this word today, here's what I hope. You have to face your idols. You've got to face them. You've got to look at them. You've got to name them. You have to allow the Spirit of God to say, this is what's in your heart. Right? This is what's going on in your mind. If he's not already done that, and I trust that perhaps he has, he will continue to do that as we come to his word. So please hear this from Acts chapter 17, verses 22 through 40, 34. These are the very words of God. So Paul Standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an, idol with the, or an altar rather, with the inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. The God, verse 24, who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and of earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that there might feel, that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own prophet, or poets rather have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Verse 29, being then God, God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance of God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Verse 32, now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom was Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Demarius and others with them. These are the very words of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you because where else are we going to go? You've got the words of eternal life. And so may we submit to your word as we hear it. Father, I pray for my friends. I pray for myself. I pray for my family, my brothers and sisters that as a difficult yet clear word is proclaimed from your word to our hearts, to our minds that you have created, may we not build exception clauses. May we not build up walls of defensiveness. But Father, may you through your word lay open and lay bare. Would you expose? Would you confront? Would you bring into the light? Not for the sake of our harm and discomfort, but for the sake of our good. God, idols are killing us. Every day we could look in Chicago and just like in Athens see idols littering, littering the streets, littering our hearts and our minds. And so God, help us. Perhaps for some of us this is new language to consider. This is a new process to go through. Perhaps as a young follower of Jesus, I pray for my friends here who not yet are followers of Jesus, but curious, may they come face to face with the idols that they love and trust and obey today. And that as you confront us, your people, your church, would we respond as your kids with humility, with love, with joy that you are a God who draws near to us in the midst of our sin. And so God, we ask for your help. I ask for your help. Help me to be clear. Help me to be responsible with your word. 
Help me to live out the mandate from 1 Peter that I would shepherd the flock of God through your word, not under compulsion for shameful gain, but willingly as the Lord would have me. Help me to do that for the sake of my brothers, my sisters, this, your people, your church. Do all of this and a thousand other things, God, by your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, amen. So once again, Paul is invited up to this place called the Areopagus. Paul is invited to a space that used to be used for sort of judicial process, for conversations of a legal matter, but by the first century, it became a place for thoughtful conversation. This is why it kind of feels a bit like a boys club, like all of these learned, educated men kind of have this little hideaway and perhaps like the little rascals say no girls allowed right on the outside and have these weird conversations that are thought-provoking and stimulating to them. The philosophers of their time, the learned people of their time, they bring Paul into this space, the Areopagus, or as Mars Hill is what it's also called. And in a very real sense, what this context is, is a bit of an altar to the God of their knowledge. It's a bit of an altar where they make sacrifices, where they cry out, where they make melody and hymns and songs and spiritual songs unto the God of knowledge. They bow the knee to the God of knowledge there. They're they're there to be exposed to their God. They're there to offer sacrifices to their God. This is where they come as the commentator Peterson from his book on Acts says, that what took place here was more of an open inquiry than a hostile inquisition. In other words, they didn't come to battle here. This wasn't like a rap battle, a knowledge battle. This was a come to ask thought-provoking questions and to be stirred up in knowledge because they all were worshiping the same God. Here's what takes place in verse 22. So Paul, standing in their midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, from the outset, we ought to ask, is he being sarcastic? Because it, sure, it would sure would be awesome if he's being sarcastic. Well, this particular word, religious, or in particular when it comes together with very, very religious, can only be understood within the context. You see, in one hand, it could be this mild compliment of saying, I see your passion, I see your zeal. Or it could mean you're incredibly superstitious. You are collecting all of these artifacts unto yourself to make you feel comfortable in yourself. You are very religious. Fortunately for us, when we look at the context alone, we see that Paul is already agitated with this situation. And so context helps us to understand, perhaps to our great elation, that when he says you are very religious he is really critiquing their entire worldview of building a system of superstition, of intellectual prowess, but he is doing it in such a wonderfully subtle way. Is this not what great debate is made of? Subtlety. It sort of puts them on their back foot going, is he for us or is he against us? This is what I love about what we're about to read about Paul's discourse. He never comes out right and calls them names. He never calls them lame or stupid for believing what they believe. He never usurps them and belittles them and just says, you're dumb for believing this silliness, which perhaps some of our corporate debate in our nation has been belittled to such disgusting simplicity. Paul is not like that. Paul gives great care to the way that he is communicating with a learned environment, an educated environment, because he is not trying to belittle them. He is trying and hoping that they will believe in Jesus. He is trying to win them over, not just prove his point. The difference is eternally important for us, church. Sometimes I think we are happy to go, I was faithful. I said what I needed to say. Yes, but did you know who you were talking to? Did you see them? Did you love them? Do you know that literally every Sunday before I come up here, the Lord asks me, do you really love these people? Are you just trying to prove a point? Sometimes I get up here and I am deeply convicted by that because I'm just like, I read this this week. Y'all need to obey. Let's go. Instead of realizing what the word of God instructs me is that as an elder, I'm not to labor over God's word so that I can hold it over you, but I'm to labor in God's word that we might become something together. That requires love. And I confess to you that that battle in my heart is not what Paul is emulating here. What Paul is emulating is a great love for these people. He doesn't call them names. He doesn't belittle them. He is hoping that they will see the greater reality of Jesus over and against the idols that are littering their minds and their hearts. Look at verse 23. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God, 
What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And before we get to his proclamation, it's interesting what Paul does here, like a great philosophical apologist, one who is making a claim about the reality of Jesus and missionary hoping to see conversion and transformation happening, he has studied their culture. He understands their context. He understands what's going on. This is why when we show up in a neighborhood like Logan Square, we don't just say, here, we have all of the answers for the neighborhood. What do we do? We befriend, we learn, we become neighbors. We understand, we want to understand how people in our particular neighborhood or where we live or if they've called home for generations, what is it like to be them? What is their story? What are their loves? What are their dislikes? What are their fears? What are their hopes? Where do they feel safe? Where do they feel protected? How do they feel loved? We try to learn the story of a location before we literally just come in and pummel them with the gospel. Paul understands his context, and in understanding his context, he found the inscription to the unknown God. Now, research in this particular area in first century Athens, interesting, they never actually found that inscription in the singular form. They only found it in the plural. In other words, there were many artifacts with the inscription to the unknown gods. And so it's uncertain here whether Paul is taking sort of creative license or whether he has found something of which we haven't found yet in terms of our research of that particular area. But the point is clear. What Paul is doing is he is using their own understanding as a crack in the door, as it were, to speak to them the reality of God, the reality of the gospel. Because what's really happening here See, he says that they're very religious and that they're superstition. They have these quantities, an exuberant number of idols all over the place, including their hearts and minds. And yet, this inscription that he quoted is a marker that these who esteem knowledge, that they know and love new things, are actually quite ignorant. What do we mean by that? Well, the Athenians were so superstitious that they feared in their polyistic worship they were going to miss something. They're sort of terrified. Like, we know that there's tons of gods. And so let's build an altar with the inscription to the unknown God, just in case if we've missed something, that we're catching that God too. See, we had this unknown junk drawer catch-all inscription that we're like, we're going to worship you too. We're going to bow the knee. We're going to love and obey you even though we don't know you. Here's where Paul finds his apologetic and missionary in. In other words, are you picking up what Paul is about to throw down? If you who love knowledge so much, how can you be so ignorant of God? How can you be so ignorant of God? In fact, what he does in particular here is he says, oh, there's an unknown God to you? Let me tell you his name. Let me tell you about him. Let me tell you about the God that you don't know. See, this confession of a lack of knowledge by the Athenian community is the crack in the door as it were, that Paul uses to speak plainly about the gospel toward their ignorance. Oh, that we would know our neighbors and friends' stories so well that we would be able to communicate the gospel to them in a way that makes sense, that speaks to them in their current condition and current situation. You see, Peterson continues, in their anxiety to honor any God inadvertently inadvertently ignored, the Athenians had displayed ignorance of the one true triune God. See, their idol of knowledge had built this self-refuting system. How can they be so smart if they don't even know all the gods? How can they feel so protected? How can they feel so esteemed? And the same, I believe, self-refutation and the same hypocrisy exist within the pluralistic and relativistic society that you and I called home. Same. See, in a world where all truths are esteemed protected, there is one reality and one truth and one view of life that is left unacknowledged and unwelcomed, the view that claims a solitary truth, the one view that claims the truth, and a claim of ultimate truth is always sacrificed on the idol of relativism. The claim of having a vision and a value of a singular truth in God is always sacrificed at the idol of relativism. Oh, we are not so different from the Athenians. The Athens loved, Athenians loved and trusted countless gods, but the people in the Areopagus who believed and esteemed and knowledge to such a great degree reveal the feebleness of idols because their idols that they created merely gave birth to fear. Idols always give birth to fear. 
Idols always give birth to fear. And so tilling the soil of their fear, of their uncertainty, Paul proclaims this reality about the God of the Bible. Look at verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and of earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all of mankind life, breath, and everything. Here's the brilliance of what Paul does with his proclamation of who God is. He affirms and esteems the reality of who God is and of who human beings actually are, but at the exact same time, the content of that rebuttal is directly confronting the fear of the Athenians. He's so brilliant. We have much to learn about Paul. He is not just simply proclaiming truth in a vacuum. He is proclaiming truth that directly confronts the fears of his audience. Here's what I mean. First, he says this is what God is like. Four things he said that God is like. One, God made the world. Like simple, basic, elementary, move on preacher. We can't. He is the creator. He is the one who has created all things. This is where Paul begins. Not only so, but along with that, he says he made everything in the world. So not only is he creator, but he is sustainer of the life that he has put within the context of the world. We see Genesis playing out here. The first three days creates spaces, environments. The the second three days, he fills those environments with life and joy and fruitfulness and life. Thirdly, God is Lord of heaven and earth. In other words, that he is sovereign. Fourthly, that God gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. Paul is making a clear case of who God is, an uncompromising God who is the life-giving God, who is the creator God, who is the sustainer God. But he also says, here's what God is not like. God does not need man-made temples. He cannot be bound, in other words. Secondly, God is not served by human hands. In other words, he is not incomplete. Double negative means a positive. He is complete. He is full within himself. Third, God does not need anything. He is not dependent. Let's break this down a little bit more. Let's think about this. To an audience that is terrified of leaving out gods, to an audience that is a, literally a factory of physical, visible idols which represent deeper affections and love for knowledge, to them, Paul says, the unknown God, the God you do not know about, he is not created, he is creator. Let me introduce you to him. Paul says he addressed what was direct, clear, and convicting, and incredibly actually hopeful. He undresses their truth, undresses their value, but he also administers life to them. He administers life to them. How does he do this? In saying that if you fear missing God, you don't need to fear missing God's anymore. Why? Because there's only one. You don't have to have all of this fear that's constantly making you write crazy general statements like to the unknown God, to the unknown God. Secondly, how he is quieting their fears is you don't have to hustle making more and more gods because the true God is not made. He is the real maker. He confronts their particular fears by revealing how God is truly the satisfier of their deepest longings. See, Paul preaches to his audience about God, about who he is, And the specific of his instruction have to do with the independence of God. The way we could summarize Paul's teaching theologically is in the self-existence of God. Now, Paul didn't come up with this. Hear this from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 21 through 31. Do you not know? Do you not hear? He is not, uh, he is not, he has it not been told you from the beginning Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble, to whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? 
The Lord is everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. He under, his understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has not his, his might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not grow faint. This is an independent God. He is not one who is longing and waiting to be filled up and made complete. He is perfectly kind, outside of time, creator of all things. He has no need of anything. He has no need of anyone, and he is over all things. This is the God that Paul is preaching. This is the God that Paul is not making up, but knows the scriptures have testified to his character since creation. In particular, I believe what Paul has in mind here of what this doctrine of God's independence or God's self-existence means is at least three aspects of his independence. That God is independent in his existence. In other words, that he is not filled up by time. He is not bound by time. He does not grow. He does not decay. His life and existence is purely and completely and sufficiently found within himself. Therefore, he alone is the eternally uncreated one. Secondly, what we learn about God's independence is that he is independent as it relates to his will. This one's pretty hard. He's not waiting for our input. He is not waiting for groupthink or everybody to get together and vote on what we all think is best. His will is unhindered. His will is independent. His will exists within his own personhood. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Thirdly, not only in his existence, not only in his will, but also in his power, God is independent. In other words, he doesn't merely exist within himself perfectly without need, without want, and he doesn't just have in his mind a particular will, but he is able to carry out all things without anybody's help, without waiting for us to join his team and to complete the roster, right? He is not waiting for his will to be satiated and satisfied by our complicity to it. His will is sufficient, his existence is sufficient, and his power is sufficient. He never lacks an ability to accomplish his self-existing will. God is free from performance-enhancing substances like our abilities and our thoughts and our input. Are you uncomfortable yet? God needs no one, needs nothing to exist and accomplish his dictated well, he is completely independent. He is uncreated. He is unhindered. He is not compromised. He is sufficient within himself. He is complete. He is whole. He is full. He is perfect in his own glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. Now, unlike God, you and I are completely dependent. Let's juxtapose that for a second because this is what Paul does next. We are not autonomous. That's why sometimes it's so hard for us to wrap our minds around the utter autonomy of God because we are incredibly dependent creatures. But you see, if God is the source of all life, if God is the creator and sustainer, then we, like everything else, are utterly and completely dependent upon God. So from giving this high view of God, that he is independent, that he is self-existing, now Paul sort of condescends into our space in verse 26 and tells us the truth about who we are. Look at verse 26 through 28. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. For in him... We live and move and have our being, as some of your own prophets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. First, Paul gives us a picture. He witnesses the diversity, witnesses to the diversity of humanity. He speaks clearly, and what, what flows from it is from this idea that God has created all peoples for all times and all spaces. You see, in some respects, we are all, all humanity, a part of the family of God in that we all come from him, in that we are all designed through his power and by his will to be born of Adam, all from the same family tree. So we should therefore understand that multi-ethnicity and diversity is the fullest expression of God's people because all people are ultimately from God. Not only so, 
But the physical dependency is a precursor to the willful dependency. Notice that we aren't just from him physically, but in him we live and move and have our being. That our purposefulness of reaching out and finding him, of seeking him, that's what our mission in life is. To reach out and seek God is our purpose. We are meant to love, trust, and obey God. We are not just created by God for our own independence. We are created by God for our utter dependence upon him to bring glory to him by loving, trusting, and obeying him and no one else. Yet in our utter dependency, here's what begins to happen. In our utter dependency, like the Athenians, instead of being dependent upon God, we make idols that will be dependent upon us. In our sin, we do the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite of worship. Instead of loving and trusting and obeying the one who has created us, we make things that we can love, trust, and obey that we hope will return the favor. Notice verse 29 says this, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold, silver, or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. In other words, God is infinitely different than our idols. He's not just a little bit different. It's not like an option on a plethora of options for us. He is infinitely different. This also is not new to Paul. Psalm 115 puts it this way. The psalmist giving some biblical footing, if you will, from where Paul will stand and launch here in the Areopagus. He says this, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, why should the nations say, where is their God? Oh, God, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths. Hear this, church. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throats. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Oh, house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. This passage perfectly describes here the scene in Athens. A confrontation of Paul through his words of understanding his cultural context, speaking truth about a living God over and against litter and countless idols that have ears but cannot hear, eyes but cannot see. Here's Paul's point in all of this. Here's the psalmist's point about all of this. Above all of these man-made gods dwells the true God in heaven who hears, who speaks, who sees, who is engaged who loves, who is with the exact opposite of our idols. Here's what writer Andy Crouch says as he breaks it down in his book, Playing God, which I commend to you. All idols begin by offering great things for a very small price. All idols then fail more and more consistently to deliver on their original promises while ratcheting up their demands. In the end, they fail completely, even as they make categorical demands. In the memorable quote, phrase rather, of psychiatrist Jeffrey Satanover, idols ask more and more while giving less and less until eventually they demand everything and give nothing. Now, why are idols so destructive? Because they're a lie. Because they're, your idols are a lie. They have mouths and they can't talk. You have literally made them to talk to you and to speak truth to you, and they don't have a word to say. They can't speak. We have made them to have ears to listen to us in our sorrow. They can't hear anything. We've given them noses so they can smell the sweet aroma of our worship. They can't smell anything. Their olfactory system does not exist. Olfactory just made a sermon. That's a really good day. We've given them hands so they can be put to work for us, but they can't feel a thing. We've given them feet so they'll do work for us. They can't move. They can't walk. We love and trust idols, but they do not possess the ability that we have made them to have. We love and trust idols, but the point of the psalmist, the point of Paul here in the Areopagus, is that your idols will not love you back. They can't. 
your idols will not love you back. Perhaps this is why we have built them in the first place. It's sort of a codependent relationship because as we learned last week, Aaron helped us to see that your idols actually need you. If you stop feeding your idols, they cease to exist. It actually kills them. But the more we feed our idols, the more alive they are, the more debilitating they become, the more that they demand from us. Now at this point, I know what you're thinking because I've met with every single one of you and had this conversation already, so I know exactly what you're thinking. Well, then it sounds like idols are just like the fun things in life and we're not supposed to have any fun, so Christians aren't supposed to have any fun. All joy is idolatrous, right? You're hearing this like puritanical sort of overarching view that if you have pleasure, if you have joy, if you have happiness, you have an idol, repent for the kingdom of God is coming to take away all of the rest of your joy, right? Well, maybe it's because sometimes I preach that way, so forgive me. Maybe that's sometimes what we fear most, and so that's what we hear, and therefore we continue to rebel in our ignorance. But let me help us understand while walking through five contemporary idols to help us see what the difference is between finding joy in what God has given us and when it becomes idolatry. See, when we enjoy a delicious meal and appreciate its nourishment, that's joy. When we appreciate and find nourishment in a delicious meal, when we look rather to food and drink, to comfort, to control, and to give us identity, that's an idol. When we look to our children as a gift to disciple and to enjoy, to get on the ground and build a train with for the sake of enjoyment and relationship, that's joy. When we look to our sons and daughters to validate our existence and eradicate our loneliness and to show the world how great we are, that's idolatry. When we look to money as a tool to extend God's kingdom, provide care for our families, care for our communities and world, that's joy. When we look to our finances to give us sovereign authority over our present and over our future, that's an idol. When we look to recreation as a gift from God, as a restful pleasure of momentary break from productivity, that's joy. That's a joy that God has given us in recreation. When we look to the pleasure of recreation, though, as an escape from reality, as the ultimate expression of life, like if I could quit my job and be at every Cubs game, that would be my ultimate experience. Or if recreation spills, spills over and fills up every gap of our life, stealing us away from the deep rhythms of community and mission and lament and confession, that's idolatry. When we look to sex, as the physical and soulful cultivation of an intimacy made by the covenant of marriage, that is a joy. But when we look to sex as reassurance of our personal beauty and our personal worth, or as a space where we display our power and seek control, that's an idol. You see, we begin with love and trust and obey these things. When we, when we ultimately look at these good things as things that become central to us, they begin to crush us and we crush them. Pretty soon the same meal isn't as satisfying as it used to be. What do you do when your kids no longer pose for those Instagrammable moments? They won't fit within the story you're trying to tell the world. Soon we realize that our purchasing power can't meet the demands of life's most costly problems like the demise of cancer. Recreation soon loses its meaning and we have to ratchet up how long we are away and how many fun things we do pretty soon because rest no longer makes sense. Resting never, no longer makes sense without the rhythms of work and mission and community all in balance. And pretty soon your lust for beauty and control through sex takes you outside of what we might perceive as the limiting confines of marriage. See, soon our idols demand much more of us and give us nothing. This is where it becomes so hopeful that God is independent and all-sufficient. This is where it becomes incredibly hopeful because look at verse 27. Look at verse 28. It says, the God who is over all things is not far off from each of us. That the God who is over all things says you are indeed his offspring. See, the God who doesn't need us draws near to us. Can I get an amen? 
when our idols are crushing us and separating us from the real God of the Bible. Here's the fascinating twist. The God who is a wholly independent being, who nothing in his nature makes him draw near to you, but he compels himself by his love is what brings him close. A God who is completely autonomous, therefore, means that his love and care is a means of grace. The God who was and is independent binds himself to us by choosing us by his own volition. Through covenant and through cross. And so this is what Paul says next. Look at verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he demands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. What Paul ultimately does after it's said and done, his cultural acumen meets his understanding of the gospel, directly communicating about the morbidity of idols, elevating the God of the Bible as the one who is independent, self-existent, and over all things, and now he calls them to repent. Repent of your idols. Turn from the idols that are crushing you and killing you and come to the true God. See, his motivation is ultimately Jesus. Notice the language here that he uses. That one is coming to judge and the assurance we have of that judgment day is the resurrection. The assurance that we have. First, he calls this repentance is to ultimately be a response to a fixed day and a chosen man. Right? He's not wondering I'm not sure when this is going to work out best to have a particular day. The day is set. There is a judgment day that many of us just go, that just seems rather harsh. Let me tell you how beautiful the day of the Lord is going to be. Let me tell you how beautiful this day is going to be. It is a judgment day, and it is for the good of the world. See, the day of the Lord is the day when all things get set to rights. See, right now we are living within our idols as the center of our own universe, as the center of our own lives, as the center of our own story. But on that day, the real lead actor is going to show up. The real central figure in all of history is going to show up. The real person who can set things to rights and who controls your present and your future will show up as judge. And that's a good, good day because that's as it should be. See, the reason that idols are so broken is because that's not how it should be. You shouldn't be the center. You and I, I shouldn't be the center. I shouldn't be the center of my own story. I shouldn't be the center of my own life. That Jesus is the center of all things. He holds all things together, Paul writes in Colossians, by the word of his power. I don't hold things together by the will of my idols. And so on that day, Jesus will take his right place as the centerpiece of the entire story, set all things to rights, and he will come to judge. And what is he going to judge? He's going to judge our idols. He's going to judge our hearts. And he's going to simply ask, was I the center of your story or were you? Was I your righteousness or were you your own righteousness? And you might say, well, that still doesn't sound like a very good day the assurance we have of that day. Did you hear what Paul said? The assurance of that day is resurrection. The assurance of that day is resurrection. In other words, we are not waiting for a Lord to wake up from the slumber. We are waiting for a living God to come back and claim what is his. We are waiting for God to come back because it is in this articulation where we have this hopeful idea that no idol is able to do what Jesus will completely reveal on that day. He'll love us back. And, and actually, in a better way to put it is that it's he loved us first. He loved us first. Jesus can do what none of your idols can do, what none of my idols can do. Love you first. It was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. You did not choose me, but I chose you, Jesus said in John 15, 16. We love because he first loved us, 1 John 4, 9. None of your idols can claim that. None of your idols can say I loved you first because you and I created our idols. They are dependent upon us when we should be dependent upon God. So Jesus alone is worthy of our love because he loved us first. Jesus alone is worthy of our trust because he died and rose again for our sake. Jesus alone is worthy of your obedience because he alone is our righteousness. Here's what it comes down to. In our idolatry, we put ourselves at the center, but the hope of the gospel is that Jesus can set things to rights in your heart today. 
so that at the day of the Lord, there will merely be a fulfillment, a flourishing, and a completion of the work that he has began in you, begun in me through his church in this world. So how do we respond? Verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among who also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. The first response is mockery. If today you are mocking the resurrection, the invitation is to repent. Repent of such mockery, because isn't it true to mock the resurrection when we are worshiping idols is incredibly hypocritical. Let Let me briefly explain why. What more is taking gold silver, stone, or knowledge and making it the object of our worship than believing that what is dead can give you life. To not believe in the resurrection, in other words, a dead son of God rising to new life after three days, you have the same faith placed in the wrong object if you mock the resurrection. What the resurrection is is a living God who came to die in our place and for our sins, to draw near to us when our idols separated us from him. And therefore, the most logical thing to do is to believe in a living God who is alive again. Secondly, we may be curious. I'd like to say to you, ask questions. Questions and doubts are the other side of faith. They spur us on toward love and good deeds. At church in the square, may we never shun a thoughtful question asked in humility for the sake of understanding. This is what Paul does. He stays longer to engage with them. Thirdly, the response that we see is joining and believing. Believing and joining. See, we cannot independently believe that our idols are now crushed in Jesus. We must join together in this. This is why we must be a confessional church that doesn't just say, here's the bad that I've done, but here are the idols that I'm trusting. Here are the loves that I'm wrongly loving. Here are the things that I am obeying. Come with me, walk with me, help me. May it make me more and more, Lord Jesus, who you have called me to be, not independently within our hearts, but as James 5 teaches us, to confess those sins to one another, that we might be made well together, that we might be made useful for God's kingdom purposes in a culture, in a space, in a city, in a neighborhood, in a region where there are many idols, and yet Jesus is sufficient to expose those idols and to reveal the genuine truth about who God is. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask for your help. We, like sheep, have gone astray. We have worshipped and served the creation rather than the creator God who is forever to be praised. And so, Father, expose the idols of my heart. Expose the idols of my brother's and sister's heart. Make us more and more the church, the people that you're calling us to be, that we might see your good, pleasing, and perfect will come to a deeper more flourishing fruition right here and right now, all the way up into the day of the Lord when all things will be set to rights. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.